And when he put his hand on my back, it was sort of like the father that I never had. You know what I mean? It was like this guy who had the compassion to come up and say, you know, you're not being a wuss. You're not be, you're a man has these feelings. Man, you know, if you're going to be a decent actor, you know, you want to make it in this town. You got to find this kind of emotion. If you can't, you just full of shit. Listening to Inside Acting, a podcast dedicated to demystifying the inner and outer game of success in the entertainment industry. I'm Trevor Algott, and coming up in episode 258 today, an encore interview series with one of the most impressive humans on the planet, P90X creator Tony Horton. This is an interview series that I've been wanting to bring back from the vaults of the podcast for a long time now, and I figured that right now, with all the calorie-stuffed, time-crunched holidays, uh, having somebody like Tony Horton, again, creator of P90X, life-changing stuff, having him on the show again is the perfect opportunity to reconnect with a guy who got his start really as an out-of-shape actor with zero prospects. From subsisting on Cheerios and yogurt as a street mime in Santa Monica to the early acting class that left him sobbing on the floor to the sobering feedback that he got from an agent, the feedback that ultimately put him on the path to becoming a celebrity trainer, this first part of our conversation with Tony will remind you that nothing is impossible and that there are no excuses. Stick around. Support for this episode of Inside Acting comes from Rehearsal Pro. The next version of Rehearsal, the essential app for actors, is now available in the iTunes App Store. If you want to learn your lines, be off book for your auditions, explore your character, make stronger choices, and do a bunch of other cool stuff, go to rehearsal.pro slash IAP right now, where you can learn all about the great new features in this newest version of Rehearsal, a groundbreaking app designed by actors for actors. And as you know, we cannot recommend it enough. That's rehearsal.pro slash IAP. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 258. We took uh, a week off last week for a couple uh, different reasons, not the least of which was my car deciding to just basically stop working in the middle of the street on Thanksgiving Day. Um, so a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of things going on in the inside acting world, but we're really happy to be back. And uh, like I said in the intro, I'm really excited to be bringing back this interview with Tony Horton. It's one of my all-time favorites, not only because Tony kind of completely changed my life, but because I think his philosophy is 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 probably the the like one philosophy that you could possibly ever want to have to enjoy success in your life and as you'll hear over the next three parts as we revisit this interview series from many years ago um he's he's a guy that uh did not come by his success by accident Everything that he has created in his life comes down to a few basic principles and, you know, just treating people right, learning to say yes and responding to the feedback, being open and vulnerable 
and showing up for people is really what his his um, work and his life and his legacy is all about. So before we jump into uh, that interview, part one of that interview, uh, I want to take a quick moment to welcome uh, some new members that have jumped on board and joined us, joined the inner circle of the podcast. Michelle Aguilar, Colin Allen, Kurt McCarthy, Donica Burmester, and Ian Coleman. Welcome, guys. Uh, a couple of you I know personally, a couple of you I've just interacted with online, and a couple of you I don't know. Actually, that's, the math doesn't add up there, but you guys get the idea. I'm really happy to have a, a nice, diverse mix of people joining us inside the membership, uh, supporting the podcast. You guys make this thing possible. Thank you so, so very much for contributing to the continued production of this thing and for um, connecting with all of us. Inside the membership, speaking of, Freddie Velateo, who's a longtime listener and supporter of the podcast, has a great post about stepping into his producer role for the very first time, producing a show called Motherfucker with the Hat. Maybe you guys have heard of it. Anyway, he's asking for some advice, some feedback, and I would love to hear what people have to say about that as a producer. Because as um, Emily Grace, all the way back, uh, gosh, it must have been almost 100 episodes ago now, talked about uh, how how if you're a producer as well as an actor, you kind of can't ever have an excuse for not working. (laughs) And I think that's a really good point. So um, would love to hear people's thoughts on uh, Freddie's um, questions about stepping into producing a great, great play that was on Broadway a year or two ago with Chris Rock and uh, some other celebrity whose name is escaping me at the moment. So that's pretty exciting. And also in the in the uh, membership, we're going to be kicking off in the beginning of January an artist's way Inside Acting Group. Really excited about this. A uh, longtime listener and supporter, Grace Gordon, is going to be leading this this uh, group for us. And we're going to be connecting inside the membership, possibly offline as well, going through week by week, chapter by chapter, Julia Cameron's self-guided creativity course, The Artist's Way. And anybody listening who follows me on social media will know that I recently completed the course all by myself. It took me um, probably like 16 or 17 weeks to do the 12 weeks, but life-changing stuff. I'm a student for life. I'm still doing the morning pages and the artist date, and I probably will for the rest of my life. Uh, Very subtle but powerful shifts in my... uh, spiritual self, really, to be completely honest. So look forward to that. We're going to have prizes. We're going to have lots of cool stuff going on. So that's going to be happening first week of January inside the IAP membership. Uh, And lastly, there is a question from Connor that I wanted to respond to on this episode because he wrote in a while ago and I responded via email and I just wanted to air it on the actual podcast as well. So Connor writes in and he says that something he consistently runs into in this industry on this path is the constant mental ups and downs that come with being an actor. I'm sure everybody listening can relate to that. He says, I feel like because actors are more in tune with our emotional and spiritual selves, that makes them experience higher highs and lower lows, which is both a blessing and a curse. And he was wondering if any of us have uh, tips or approaches on how to handle life's lower low points. To be more specific, he says, I'm not necessarily just referring to the lows that are associated with rejection. Rejection happens and I feel pretty comfortable dealing with that. More of my lows are associated with sudden decreases in my own perceived abilities and a sudden lack of self-confidence based on being hard on myself. One thing I've always loved about my own work ethic is how hard I work and no matter what, I continually push myself in my craft. But 
Do you guys have any tips for dealing with the mental ups and downs that uh, I feel like are pretty specific to this industry? So, Connor, great question. Uh, as you know, um, this is something that I struggle with a lot. I, I personally am a really pretty sensitive guy. I've learned to own this about myself. Uh, I'm very impressionable and very sensitive. And the smallest little uh, change in somebody's inflection or the word usage that they use, things that may uh, just sort of coast over the head of other people, I, I take them in and I make up stories about them and I all of a sudden – you know, I'm, I'm convincing myself that I'm a worthless human being. So I've been there, man. And, um, I wanted to respond to this on the air by saying, number one, I feel you. And I don't think that's something that's ever going to go away, but I do think that we can become more evolved in how we handle that. And, uh, like you said, it is a curse, but also very, very much a blessing. So I responded to Connor with an email and, uh, I basically said for me, uh, and I'll go ahead and just start this off by referencing the artist way. For me, uh, the combined practice of morning pages, which for anybody who's not familiar, are three pages of stream of consciousness writing typically done first thing in the morning uh, in a notebook by hand just to kind of brain dump or unload your psyche or your soul or your heart. And that combined with a regular meditation practice, so journaling and meditation, has made all the difference in the world for me. Uh, Carrie Bechet said it in her episodes that she loves being an actor because it is the most self-examined life. And I really love the way she put that because that's really what it's all about for us as actors. Our job is to really probe the depths of our soul uh, and by extension, the soul of human beings to figure out really what that texture actually feels like. So what I wrote to Connor, as I said, for me, a daily meditation practice has been absolutely life-changing, and I love Headspace. Headspace is an app and a website with guided meditations. It's a pay-to-play uh, app, but I think it's well worth the investment. I, I spend 70 bucks a year for the uh, opportunity to access all the guided meditations. And it basically teaches you how to meditate. It's uh, it's pretty accessible and easy. There's no crazy like sound effects or binaural you know biohacks or anything like that. It's just you and Andy, the guy who created it, uh, guiding you through a meditation and silence your breath, your thoughts, and finding a space between those thoughts and being okay with it. So uh, check it out, Headspace.com. Andy's a former Buddhist monk. Um, and I say former only because he's no longer in Tibet, um, practicing as a monk. He's now living in California, running uh, the headspace business, but through meditation, my experience with it, I've learned to disassociate for the most part. I mean, this is a practice, but I've learned to dissociate from my very reactionary tendencies, things that trigger me. I've learned to sort of slow down and notice the trigger response happening, just sort of step away from it and seeing the story start to take shape when somebody says something that I interpret in a very negative way. So I, I see it. I learned to sort of unplug from that and practice on a daily basis, really, just being a more emotionally consistent human being. So when I notice the emotional response to something, I've learned to simply identify it. Hey, there's anger or wow. Okay. I'm aware right, right now I'm experiencing frustration. Oh, look, there's fear. There's anxiety. Oh, wow. I feel hurt right now. I feel despondency. I feel despair. And just the act of Identifying that seems to to um, sort of defuse it a lot. And then uh, after I identify that, I take a deep breath, 
I recenter myself in the present moment, um, usually just by making a conscious uh, effort to feel my feet in my shoes, to feel the wind uh, on my skin, the sunlight on my skin or wherever I am, just to feel the textures of the space that I'm in. And then I move forward intentionally in that awareness, just knowing that this thing that I'm experiencing is simply a feeling and it exists only inside my head. So it's been an immensely supportive practice to be in that space. The combination of journaling and meditation practice every day has been a way that I've found very effectively helps me navigate the low lows that, uh, that you're talking about, Connor. So highly recommend that. Hope uh, those two practices are something that you find supportive as you implement and experiment with them in your life. And anybody else listening would love to hear your two cents or your input on uh, how you deal with being a sensitive person. I think most of us listening can probably relate to that title, sensitive person. If not, k- kudos to you. You're awesome. <laughs> I'm jealous. All right, guys. So that's it for this first part of the episode. Let's jump into part one of our encore conversation, which is just a fancy way of saying our repeat conversation with Tony Horton. Very excited to be bringing this back into the consciousness, into the community, especially at a time when most of us are going to be sort of taking a dump on our health and then uh, looking up a month from now and wondering what happened. So (laughs) use this as fuel for your fire to stay uh, on track with your health and fitness goals. And I'll see you on the other side. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Trev, AJ, and Jen sitting here um, with someone we... This is probably a milestone for, for the podcast. You know, one of the reasons we started this thing was so, so that we'd have a, a good excuse to basically reach out to and sit down with people that we really uh, admire and whose work we enjoy and that we'd like to just talk to and uh, basically for our personal heroes. And today we are excited to be sitting here across from P90X creator, Tony Horton. So, Tony, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Well, I got to say, it's very exciting. I want to thank you all for invading my home. <laughs> yeah, so I, was, I, know, I know your plot. This is how you hang out with uh, people you admire, so you can come to their place and see uh-huh. how they decorate. I know. I, was, I actually to, already put a few DVDs yes. in my bag. Yeah, yeah you want to say, is the guy, yeah, to see if I'm, you know, I'm actually overweight or in fit, if uh-huh. I'm not. Unfortunately, should he's we reveal that we had a pull-up contest prior to this? Uh, <laughs> yeah, this, yeah, no. it was uh, a sobering experience for you. Uh, oh. No, oh, <laughs> well, this is how it's going to begin. <laughs> All right, we're already bringing up the already. Let fire um, away, brother. Yeah, so cool to be sitting across from you as somebody who's who's um, done PMDX basically for a year straight. Um, but you're, you're I, a wise, I, wise man. <laughs> I, I quit my gym membership the, the day I, uh, the fourth day. By the time the yoga DVD came around, I was like, I am convinced that working out in front of my TV in the living room is the, the best way to go. And I canceled my gym membership. But like I said, I want to spend less time talking about that stuff and more talking about. Oh, but wait. Oh, you can talk about all all you want. No, I, 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 I know the reason why we're here to kind of get folk give folks a sense of uh, how does a guy you know. With a C minus uh, average, end up uh, 
with a with a fitness empire. Yeah, it's give, a pretty, give us give pretty us a crazy f- story, really. Yeah, yeah, give us a feel for your journey. I mean, are you originally from LA? Not at all. I'm a New Englander, and okay. um, I grew up in Rhode Island. I grew up in a place called Westerly, Rhode Island. Uh, yeah, and so I wasn't there much, very long. My father was in the military at the time. He was a tank commander, so we were stationed. And you know, I started in Rhode Island, ended up in uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky, which who knew that was a, a, a tank base? And then we weren't there much longer before we were in uh, uh, um, Schofield Barracks in Honolulu on the Big Island. And I was a wee lad. And uh, from there, Rowate in Connecticut, Cumberland, Rhode Island, uh, Syracuse, New York. And then we settled in fifth grade for me in Trumbull, Connecticut. So I grew up wow. in Trumbull from fifth grade through 12th grade. And then I went off to the University of Rhode Island where I majored in, in beer, beer and alcohol. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and I went to some <laughs> classes too. That was cool. But, you know, as a, as a young kid, uh, a lot of people don't realize that, that uh, you know, I mean, I bounced around a bunch before I settled into, into, this, into Trumbull at fifth grade. And it was tough, you know. I mean, you went from school to school to school, new teachers, new friends, new everything. And, uh, you know, as, as a little guy, you didn't really understand why you were having such a tough time. And I, and I had a really tough time. Like I said, I almost got held back in third grade. I was a terrible student because there were different teaching techniques. And then, of course, you, the new guy always gets the prat beat out of him from the bullies. And I was a little kid. I was a, you know, I was a thin little guy and, and not athletic at all. My father was a phenomenal athlete. I mean, he was a three-sport captain. But he didn't like the whole process uh, to be to get to that point. You know, he didn't like uh, the coaches and the trainers that, and, his, and even his father gave him a pretty hard time about being perfect all the time. And I didn't I didn't uh, take to that very well. I was hmm. kind of a rebel on that stuff of being told what to do. I was on the football team, and and uh, you know, as most people have heard me tell the story, I was really more of a tackling dummy uh, Monday through Friday, and then on Saturday for the game. Uh, I was taking stats, you know, for the most part. And I would rumble around in the dirt and the dust and the mud during warm-ups so that I at least appeared to have mm. worked, uh, been in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it was a funky, hard, brutal uh, childhood. Not like some. I mean, some kids have it much worse. But I just, I just, you know, I just recall being very depressed a lot and, and very, uh, very, you know, frightened of, of getting the crap beat out of me. I had my lunch money taken the whole bit, you know. So wow! Funny. But uh, come come later on in high school, uh, things got more interesting. I got more confidence. I was an actor. Uh, I was in Ah Wilderness, the play Ah Wilderness, in, in uh, Twelve Angry Men. <clears throat> I had like the two absolute smallest parts you could have in both. But I was on stage, and it was a blast just to be there. Did you? When were you bit by the acting bug, as it were, or is it something you just kind of fell into? Well, you know. Uh, being incredibly insecure and having somewhat of a sense of humor at that age, I discovered that if I made people laugh, then uh, that was my that was my out from being you know frightened and and uh, and, and struggling and all the things that went with uh, the kind of kid that I was at that stage. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I would put on these little skits for my parents and neighbors, and you know, in college, I even took uh, because I was so afraid of of speech. And, uh, you know, I could learn my lines, the few that I usually got, and that was pretty, pretty easy. But, um, you know, I took a, I took a advanced mime class. I mean, I took an introductory mime class, uh, an advanced mime class, and then a, a master mime class. I was fascinated with, with creating things, uh, uh, that weren't there, you know, I mean, whether it be leaning or walking in the wind or, you know, Hmm. you know, walking inside the you know, the box, the glass box, all that crap. You know, I mean, we look at mime now and think, oh, that's pretty lame. But 
But, uh, you know, I was a f- big fan of Marcel Marceau. I mean, how many kids in high school? I mean, college hmm. in wow. the late 70s were yeah. Marcel Marceau fans. <laughs> Hello, nerd! <laughs> um, but the guy who taught the class was really cool, you know what I mean? And most of my teachers in high school weren't. They were just pretty pretty pathetic, really, in my hmm. experience. But he was really into it, you know I mean? Just his, his level of skill was so so amazing and I just loved that, that type of movement that isolation movement where part of your body is completely relaxed and something, some other part of your body is trying to create something that's not there and um, I used to do these, these shows uh, you know in the cup room and, and sort of the main stage in the, in the commons at night you know with whatever half the campus would be there because there's nothing else to do the university was in the middle of a turf farm you know so it wasn't like we had a, a, a big city or cool like UCLA or USC or, or other schools so we would do these, I'd do these bits, you know, and they were a little X-rated sometimes, you know, they were like, you know, I was, one minute I'm doing a glass box, the next minute I'm walking in the wind, and the next time I've, you know, I'm surrounded by three naked women. It was fun to kind of create that visually for people, and I'll let you use your imagination as to what was going on <laughs> on stage. Yeah, so a lot of, you know, like open mouth kissing and ass grabbing and pulling off bras and all this crazy stuff. And, and you know, they were always usually drunk and stuff, and I would play... Uh, ELO or Beatles like Magical Mystery Tour or whatever was uh, popular at the time and uh, a lot of acid jazz and I just played some really cool music and I would spend hours you know I mean that's why I got C- minuses in class because I was spending all my time working on my mime bits Wow, uh, for, for folks but uh, yeah that was how I got my initial initial actor um, wow thing and then that parlayed somehow into stand up comedy and then somehow you got to LA well, you know, after um, after struggling uh, on the East Coast all the way through to college, really, I mean, I was never, like I said, a never great student. URI was called You Are High, just to give you that sense of what the vibe was back then. And now it's that all that whole energy is gone. You, nobody can drink under 21. You, you know, you get caught with pot, you get busted. With all that struggle and all that strife and, and uh, all those problems, I, I kind of meandered my way through most of it. You know, I survived. And then a good buddy of mine called me one day and said... Uh, you know, what are you doing for the summer? I said, oh, I'm going to wait tables in Boston. Like I had a, I had a, a, a job in Boston <laughs> to wait tables. Yes, moving on up to the... Uh, yeah, so that was kind of sad and pathetic. Uh, but, I, you know, I, the last thing I wanted to do was have to have to go home and live with my parents. I refused, you know, to, after four years of college. That was the best I could do. No prospects whatsoever. I had $400 in my, in my bank account. 400 bucks. And um, I bought my friend Bob Hennessy, who works with me now. Uh, he does a lot of my development stuff and manages some, some projects for me now. Uh, you know, called me up and said, I'm going to California. I'm going to Hunt- Huntington Beach for the summer. You want to come? And with zero hesitation, I said, I'm in. And uh, I ran out of money in Colorado Springs, and which is really weird because I was only there about three or four days ago. So it was weird to be in a town three days ago and in 19... 19- uh, in 1980, I was last time I was there, and I had I had zero dollars, zero in my pocket. Hmm. But I had my mime outfit and my white face, and I put on my black hat, and my black vest, and black shirt, and black pants, and black shoes, and did the whole mime face thing, and went out in the streets, and um, and uh, put the hat down. And in about a day and a half, I made about 125 bucks, and I thought that's enough. I can, uh, we can get we can get going now. Uh-huh. And we ended up in Huntington Beach, and we were in southern, southern, sunny Southern California, man. In the early '80s, so many amazing, beautiful women, which is the reason why we were there. 
Um, but we never got hooked up with any of them because we were such East Coast dorks. I still had my my Tom Selleck handlebar mustache. Yes. <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? Yes. And they would say, and then everybody thought I was a narc. Yeah. You know, my neighbors thought I was a narc. I go to the club and they go, "That guy's a narc," because <laughs> right, I had the conservative, you know, pale blue button down shirt. Everybody else back in those days, in the nineteen eighties. Every single person, all the time, I don't care who you were, whether you were a cop or a garbage man, everybody had Hawaiian shirts. Hawaiian shirts. Yes. Hawaiian shirts. We're in Southern California. But it was just the look, you know what I mean? It was like baggy pants, flip flops, and Hawaiian shirts. And I'm sitting there with pleated, you know, pleated jean shorts. The hell. Pleated jean yeah, shorts. Yeah, yeah. I think I made that up, but it was, I thought it was wow. going to be funny. Um, <laughs> and uh, that and, and my, uh, and my, you know, my pink or my light purple or my blue. Oxford button-down shirt was pretty sad. Wow. So of course we looked like narcs. So you came out here basically, and you were like, I- "I'm going to give this acting thing a go." Yeah, and uh, it worked for a little while. I mean, we've we you you had a couple a couple bookings, but nothing huge. And then you were saying that you were studying with this teacher, and he was giving you some advice to maybe. I don't know. You almost made it sound like try something else because it's such a difficult industry. Well, you know, this great teacher, this really amazing man, and I believe he still teaches uh, classes at, at the Debbie Reynolds Studios over in Burbank, uh, Daryl Hickman. I mean, God, he's got to be in his 70s or maybe even in his 80s. I don't know. have to have to Google Daryl. But he had this amazing technique. I'll never forget, you know, the first day in class, frightened to death, driving from the west side all the way to Burbank to go to the Debbie Reynolds dance studio to take a class with this guy. And I knew about this class for a year or two before I finally had the cojones to show up. You know, again, I was still had no, no self-esteem, really insecure, just assumed that I was going to be the worst one there. And he and here was the very first exercise. And I know how many actors are listening in and going to go, oh, yeah, I've been there, done that, you know. So Daryl's technique was kind of a, tier, a multi-layered technique where you're kind of building, you know, being present, being in the moment. That was always really important, you know, reacting as opposed to just acting out your lines and all these different things. I can barely remember a lot of them. But one of them was, you know, you've got your lines. And so a decent director, nine times out of ten, is going to want something different out of you every time. They don't want a line reading. They don't want the same thing over and over again. They want to see, you know, they want to see your technique. I don't care if it's Meisner or whatever it is. And so he said, here's what I want you to do. So I don't know, there were probably 35 neophytes in this room from all around the country, all showed up for this 10-week introductory uh, Daryl Hickman acting class. So he, all he wanted you to do was go to the front of the room and stand there with two feet on the ground, your weight on either foot with your arms by your side, and just be open and be clear. And, uh, and his job was to ask you how you felt standing there in front of the group, first day. Like, what are your feelings? And you, it was kind of funny to watch people shift their weight and fold their arms. And you'd say, no, no, you're, you're leaning on one side. Just put your weight evenly on both feet. Put your arms down. Stop folding your arms. And, and so how do you feel? I feel good. I feel fired up. No, you don't. You know, and he would just say, I want you to be authentic. I want you to be in the moment. I'm in the moment. I feel good. And you would get all these people who are doing the song and dance to try to you know, cover up whatever insecurities and fear they were having. And it was funny to watch. You know, I think I was about the fourth one that went up. And I went up there and I just, I thought, I'm just going to do this thing. I'm just going to do this thing. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to, you know, tell everybody how awesome I feel. I feel awesome. You know, no, I'm not Donald Trump who's full of crap. Oh, sorry. For those of you that like Donald Trump. <laughs> I'm just going to be a real person in the moment, be authentic and stand here. And it was such a bizarre, bizarre moment. Right? So I stood there. And he said, I just want you to be there. Just breathe. 
you know, look around. What does that feel like? And I think I said something along the lines of, uh, odd. It feels odd. All right. What does odd feel like? And we kept going, kept going. He got me to this place where, you know, I said, uh, I said, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm scared here standing here. I don't feel good. My stomach is in knots. I don't want to screw this up. I'm trying to just be in the moment, be authentic, and, and listen. I'm trying to listen and not just talk. He says, how does that feel? Take your time. You don't have to answer right away, you know. After a little bit, I felt this, this bizarre combination of emotions just, just hit me like a wave. And one of them was re, re, a, a form of release. I felt relaxed, but I also felt um, super emotional, like on the verge. And he could see it, and he'd say, that right there. What is that? And I don't know, I started, the lips started to quiver, then the chin started to quiver. And he said, that. Don't you let go of that. Let that happen. Let that happen. That's real. That's what acting is. That's in the moment. That's authentic. Just let it go, man. Just let it go. Boom. Before I knew it, I was on the ground sobbing, sobbing, heaving, sobbing, tears coming off my, both my eyes like a river, like a baby. And I remember the floor. I'll never forget. It was a, it was a wooden floor, a hardwood floor. And it was dusty, you know, like these acting classes in these studios. People are moving around props and stuff, and they probably haven't dusted it. And I remember uh, a puddle was forming, a puddle of tears was forming on the floor. I mean, crazy, man. And then he got out of his seat. He came over, and he put his hand on my back. He said, let that happen. Let that go. That's it. And when he put his hand on my back, it was sort of like the father that I never had. You know what I mean? It was like this guy who had the, who had, who had the compassion to come up and say, you know, you're not being a wuss. You're not. Be, you're a man has these feelings. Man, you know, if you're going to be a decent actor, and you know, you want to make it in this town, you got to find this kind of emotion. If you can't, you're just full of shit. You know, you're going to end up doing shitty fucking soap operas or something. You know, so um, not to say that soap opera acting isn't great. It's a beautiful step onto your movie career. But anyway, uh, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> do they even do soap operas anymore? I think it's all game shows. There's a few left. It's yeah. Ellen. It's There's all. Four. Yeah. But. Uh, <clears throat> So it was wild, man. When he put his hand on my back, I started sobbing even more, you know. And I, it was a heck of a heck of a first day. I just felt like I was in a room by myself, and somebody gave me permission to feel what I wanted to feel without any judgment. And it was incredible. And I thought, damn, man, I'm coming back next week. So I get up, and then and, and he turns to the class, who wants to go next? And everybody's like, <laughs> f that, man. I ain't not following that. I'm not following that. And you would think though, which was interesting, one or two people got up and. And kind of tried to get there. But everybody else got back on the whole hands on the hips and arms crossed and shifting their weight and, and telling their bullshit story. Mm. You know? mm. And, you know, then I had the commercial agent and, you know, and, I, and I went out on a bunch of commercials because at that age I looked like just about everybody else, you know, that was going on these beer and car ads. You know what I mean? One after another. Beer car, beer car. Sounds about right. You know, yeah. and, uh, yeah. right. and this, changed. Yeah. nothing's changed. You know, yeah, and that's just the way it was. And, and other things, too. I mean, I did a low-and-brow commercial, and I did a 7-Up commercial, and I did a Chevy car commercial. And, man, I remember getting those gigs just thinking, that's it, I'm in! I'm mm-hmm. in, let's just gonna roll! And then you would be on, put on a veil, you just feel, you know, everybody who's an actor knows what being put on a veil means. 
That's it. I'm in. How many? What's it down to? It's like you and 13 guys. Yeah. It's not really a veil. <laughs> right. It's me and another guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And of course, I got put on a, on, a, on a veil so many times and never booked those gigs. It was so frustrating. But, you know, I was in the 13th Warrior with, with uh, Antonio Banderas. I, I had it. If you look really Sweet. quick, there's a scene where I get an arrow in the eye. I played one of the Ven, one of the man eating uh, characters in that. And uh, another scene with me eating human flesh it was really jerky but but uh wow you know you're in canada but i was also up there training a lot of the actors you know was, i didn't train antonio but i t- trained all the european actors uh to keep them in shape for the film so where did the where did the how did the training thing work its way into it because you were kind of a mime theater geek almost it really? sounds like and yeah, then you're a yeah. personal trainer as well so when did that evolve or, or well out? You know, after after Huntington Beach and after, you know, sleeping on my buddy's uh, sister's floor for the summer, we decided we should, you know, either we're going to go home, back to the East Coast, and it was about September at that point. My parents were saying, okay, you're done screwing around, come back east where you belong, and get a real job, you know. And at that point, you know, I'm calling them up uh, for $100. I just need $100 because I'm going to do this little job. I'm going to build these cabinets with my... I had a sander and a hammer and a, and a friggin' pair of tweezers, you know. I found a way to make these things work. And, and reluctantly, my parents would send me, you know, 119.95 for a belt sander and whatever, you know, whatever I needed. And occasionally, I had to call for rent, you know. And, and at some point, I realized that I had to stop doing that. You know, either make it on your own or you don't. And so I had every odd job imaginable. I was a, I was a pantomime on the pier. I mean, there were nights where I was out of money. You know, I'd, I'd, be, I'd maybe go wait tables at two or for a week, and I'd go, I hate this place. I'm out of here. I used to wait tables all through college, and I hated it. And I actually worked at the Ballard Country Club uh, for a couple of years when I just finally, you know, swallowed the pill and said, I got to do this gig because it's steady money. Mm-hmm. So I waited tables at the Ballard Country Club. I built furniture. I was a handyman. I'd go down to the pier when I was out of money. There was one night in particular, i never forget, I had no food, no food. And I hadn't eaten since the day before. And I, I couldn't borrow any more money from anybody. And, and I wasn't going to go panhandle. So I put on my, my mime outfit. I went down out to Santa Monica Went down to the pier, down to the Venice Pier, and into Westwood, you know, when I went Westwood used to hum at night. And I put that hat down, and, you know, these young kids were drunk, and they were throwing crap at me and stealing my hat. I mean, it was pretty brutal, but I needed to get that 25 bucks, and I would go down to the, uh, I lived on Bay Street in Santa Monica, Bay Street in Maine, Bay in Maine in Santa Monica, and there was a liquor store, I think it's still there. And they would sell yogurt and Cheerios, and I would buy enough yogurt and Cheerios to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a couple of days. Wow. Lived on on yogurt and Cheerios. And man, it was brutal, you know. Uh, and I worked retail and I was I was a first I was a go-go dancer at, at Chippendales for a summer. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, 23.50 an hour, man. That was big bucks. Waiting tables during the day, go-go dancing at night, baby, you know. Wow. Popping and locking and doing all that mime stuff on a little box, a box that was like 3 by 3 by 4. It was like 4 feet high and I was in the, I was to stand there on the corner of the of the dance floor. I'll never forget, you know, one of my buddies, buddies came in from Minneapolis and he looked at it, my, my buddy Tom um, and he says, does Tony's father know that his son makes a living dancing on a box at a club? <laughs> I don't think his father knows about this. Yeah. And he, they didn't know about that. Wow. But yeah, so I had every odd job in the world. And then one day um, I was working at the Bellar Country Club, you know what I mean? And I was doing the waiting tables thing and putting on the monkey suit the whole bit. And uh, a friend of mine uh, had a pretty cool job working for Julia Phillips. Julia Phillips co-produced with her, her husband, John Phillips, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You can see that poster in the room. 
Where is it? Mm, there. there it is, right above you. Yeah. Um, and The Sting with Redford and Newman. And, um, and what was the other movie? And Taxi Driver. And he got a cool job working for, for Dolly Parton as a writer and uh, kind of an upgrade from being a PA. He was also an actor. And uh, he said, hey, look, there's an opening. I know you don't want to wait tables anymore. Do you want, to, uh, do you want my job? I'll you know, have you introduce you to Julia. And uh, I said, sure. And she was a taskmaster, man. It was a brutal gig. Driving all over town, delivering scripts, changing light bulbs, feeding the cat, walk, doing laundry. You know, it was brutal. Oh, jeez. But it was pretty good pay. And um, at that point, I had already ha- I had my agent. And, and, it, and I was not in great shape. I was probably the worst shape I, I was in, in a long time. Little belly, you know, skinny little arms. And I remember my agent saying, and you know what, you guys as actors... You know, you just your agent. You, you expect your agent. You, you know, you, you, if they're going to actually get up, get on the phone and call you, you just do what they say. And they say, "Hey, man," they say, "You got to get in better shape if you want to get more gigs. You're looking a little crappy." You know, and I, right away I joined a gym. So you know, I'd get up in the morning. I joined. I'd go to the uh, go to the gym, or I'd go after after my gig over at Fox. And uh, Harlan Goodman, who was a, mu- a music producer at that time, uh, was working with Julia. And um, he was my co-boss, so Julia was one, and he was the other, and uh, running around for the two of them. And he saw that she didn't notice a thing, because she didn't care. <laughs> but, but he noticed, he says, geez, man, you're getting yoked. Your, your shoulders are bigger, your arms are bigger, your, your stomach is flatter. What are you doing? You know, and the cool thing about the job was they let me go on auditions. I've got an audition for whatever, and they let me go. Just make sure you get all your stuff done. And so he was noticing that I was changing. And so he said, can you do that for me? And I had never trained anybody before. I'd never done that ever, you know. And I thought, I'll just, you know. He said, you can charge me for that. I think I think I charged him fifteen bucks an hour, thinking, I'll just go for mm. it, man. Fifteen bucks an hour. I mean, that's a lot of money. He didn't even balk, of course. And so, three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we would go to my buddy's gym in his garage. The guy who, was, who used to have the same job, but now is a writer for Dolly Parton. And I'd train him. I'd, you know, I'd do the bench press and push ups and pull ups and hack squats and lunges and whatever. And I got him in phenomenal shape. And at some point, you know, I realized, wow, I, I might be able, be able to do this for more people because he was thrilled. He was thrilled with the results. He never got in great shape before. He was pretty regular. I made it fun, you know, much like I do with P90X. So uh, people were noticing him. Who did that? Tony Horton. I got to, you know. So all of a sudden, I'm training him in the morning. I'm doing my, my PA gig all day at Fox. And then at night, I'm training two or three others. Eventually, he left. Fox left working for Julia. You know, they just had a tough time doing the deal with anybody. And he went back to East End uh, Management and uh, back into music. So he's there walking down the hall, and in the other direction is Tom Petty. And Tom Petty uh, sees Harlan and says, Hey, Harlan, you look great. How'd you get so fit? Tom's from Gainesville. Sorry, Tom. You don't really talk like that. It's the best I can do. It's my Gainesville accent. Hmm. He said, I'm working out with Tony Horton. I need that Tony Horton. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I got a tour coming up. I got like four months. I got to get ready. I sound more like Forrest Gump. <clears throat> my name is Forrest Gump. People call me Forrest Gump. But then, boom. I'm here all week. <laughs> or at least for the next 40 minutes. Um, and so, I'll, I'll never forget, man. Tom Petty called my apartment. You know, my little crappy apartment in Santa Monica. My rent control apartment. And my roommate, Bob, picked up the phone and... And, and, and the guy, John, who works for Do- worked for Dolly at that point, uh, was a practical joker. He was always you know, calling up and saying he was somebody else, and you pick up the phone, and you have a conversation with somebody you're not, or he'd hide underneath your car for an hour and a half, so when you went down there, he would reach out and grab your leg. You know, I mean, he was just a... He was from San Diego, man. He was crazy. 
just a lot of fun though. And so uh, Bob picked up the phone. Hi, oh, it's Tom Petty. I'm looking for Tony Horton. And then Bob, you know, would put his hand over the receiver. It's I think it's I think it's Perpich. I think he thinks it's he's screwing with us. I go, hang up the phone, man. I know what I know. What he's done. Boop. Phone rings. Ha oh, ha. Oh, it's Tom Petty. Somebody hung up on me. I'm looking for Tony Horton. <laughs> and of course, Bob goes, dude. I think this is t- really Tom Petty. I think the guy saying he's Tom Petty. It's Tom Petty. Give me the phone. Hello, JP. Dude, what are you doing? I know it's you. Hi, it's Tom Petty. I'm a fan of Harlan Goodman's. Oh my God, it's Tom Petty. Oh, uh, hello. Is, is this is this Tom Petty? Yeah, it's Tom Petty. Is, is this Tony Horton? Yeah. Um, I need to get trained. Can you train me? I got a tour coming up. Uh, I'm a friend of Harlan's. He looks great. Okay, yeah. Can you come tomorrow? Yeah. Well, you know, I took on the address. He lived in Woodland, Woodland Hills at the time. Beautiful, cool, you know, rock and roll pad, beautiful place. I met him and I got him going and and I put him on. I got him a life cycle and a heavy bag and some and a bench and some dumbbells and and we just did the basics. And he was in just the worst shape in the world. I had, I had never worked with anybody who was so out of shape. But you know, I had yeah. three months. I had three months and and uh, he got stronger and stronger and his belly went away and his arms got really lean. It got really vascular and. And he just, he, the big thing was, it wasn't about the aesthetics so much anymore. It wasn't about the look that he was going for. It was about the energy that he had. He just had a buttload of energy. He just mm. felt great. So he went out on that tour that year and just killed it. Like these Springsteen-like, you know, three-hour shows. The rest of the band's like, what are you doing, man? I feel great. Let's do another one. Let's do another one. You know, so it was really fun to see that. And I went on tour. I was on, I was on tour for the... Um, the New Jersey, New York, Long Island section of the tour. I got to ride on the bus with him and his wife and, and his young kids at the time and uh, got up in the rafters, you know, way up. They were all outdoor venues and it was really cool to kind of be there and watch him do his thing. And then, you know, we'd get up usually like around 11, pretty luxurious, <laughs> go to the gym around 1. Then he, then we'd all go to sound check and he'd do the show. We repeated that for, for about three weeks. Wow. It's fun being kind of a groupie right there and watch him do his thing. And we came back from that tour... And everybody saw what had happened to him. And so all of a sudden I'm training. My, 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 one of my weeks was Billy Idol, because Billy and Tom had the same management company. Billy Idol, Tom Petty, Stevie Nicks, Stephen Stills from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Sean Connery, submarines don't react well to bullets. <clears throat> That's the only thing I do. It's pretty bad. <laughs> and then Shirley MacLaine. You know, and there were a bunch wow. of others, Allison Janney and uh, Bryce Dallas Howard and uh, wow. Ewan McGregor wow. and, and Usher and, um, oh boy, you know, I can't think of them all, but wow. yeah, it was a pretty, f- so all of a sudden I was keeping rockers from the seventies alive and, and working with a lot of actors. That was really fun. Uh-huh. But the bummer was, you know, uh, could I move out of my apartment? No. I mean, I was training one person at a time. I think I went from $15 an hour to about $115 an hour or per session. But when you start, you know, in L.A. and then you go to West L.A. and then you go to Malibu and Malibu, you go to Hollywood and then Hollywood, you go to, you know, you go to Venice. It was brutal on my cars. And uh, I had two cars because they broke down all the time because I was driving around town so much. You had a backup car. I needed a backup <laughs> car. That's awesome. I had, I had a 66 Mustang convertible, red, you know, rally sport, pretty groovy car. But the transmission would go out, the engine would go out, the brakes would go out. And then I had a beat up old 84 
white Land Cruiser that you know was like riding a boat all over town. It took like forty turns to get the thing to take a left. You know, wow. <clears throat> but it was it was a pretty cool life. I set my own time, my own hours. I was still going on on auditions. I was still booking things once in a while. At that point, I was think I was taking class with Brian Reese. Brian Reese is over on Franklin. Uh-huh. You know, um, audition stuff where you just get the, you get the sides. You got a half an hour. Get outside. Every, you know, we're doing our lines, and you get in, and you, you got to blow the doors off, yeah. off the off the audition. <clears throat> and that was fun, you know what I mean. So, um, but I was all, you know, I was always, you know, paying my dues and taking my classes and hoping that I'd get the big break. But where, where the bread and butter was was, was through, through fitness. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed part one of our encore chat with Mr. Tony Horton. God, I love that guy. Uh, my pick of the week for this week is a book called Infinite Possibilities by Mike Dooley. Some of you may recognize Mike Dooley's name. He's the guy who runs Notes from the Universe. If you're not getting those um, those emails every day, I highly recommend them. Visit tut.com to sign up for those or just Google Notes from the Universe and find a, find the email sign up for those. But Mike is a speaker and author. He works in sort of the new age uh, you know, law of attraction, secret type stuff. He works in that sort of realm of, of um, human potential. And he wrote a book called Infinite Possibilities. He also wrote a great book called The Top 10 Things Dead People Want to Tell You, which I cannot recommend enough. I actually think that book is better than the one I'm about to recommend, but they're both good. Infinite Possibilities, uh, I finished last week, and uh, it's a lot longer than it needs to be, but I really... Uh, appreciated his thoroughness in driving home the importance of choosing your thoughts, choosing the stories that you tell yourself about the world, and taking as much um, of your energy as possible. And really, he only recommends five to ten minutes a day, but I think the more you can check in with this, the better. Taking as much of that that thought energy as possible and just living in an imaginary world in the future when you have the things you want. When you are enjoying the relationships you want to enjoy and, and the income you want to uh, have and the career that you've created for yourself, closing your eyes and just feeling those feelings. And what's great about this book is he describes why it's important not to get attached to how it happens or what it looks like when it happens, but to really just let the universe handle that part and just focus on what it feels like to have accomplished those things, to have created those things. If you're not on board with this kind of thing at all, uh, totally understand. You can um, safely skip uh, this pick of the week. But Infinite Possibilities by Mike Dooley. Link is in the show notes on our website. So that does it for episode 258 of Inside Acting. Jen Levin is our production coordinator. Gadali Gubrek is our marketing and web director. Deborah Smith is our community manager. I edited and mixed the episode today with help from longtime Inside Acting supporter Christopher Gray. Chris, thanks for your help. And uh, Fern Lim designed our logo. Sign up for our weekly email dispatch and listen to all of our episodes at our website, InsideActing.net. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. If you do nothing else, a favorable review on iTunes goes a really long way for us and uh, helps other people discover the show, too. Big thanks to our sponsors, Rehearsal Pro and VO2Gogo.com, the award-winning voiceover training system and winner of Backstage's Reader's Choice Award for Best Voiceover Training four years in a row. These are the same classes that I teach in Hollywood each month. You can also access them online. And if you'd like to get started for free, 
go to vo2gogo.com slash start where you can access a free getting started in voiceover online class to help you add voiceover to your acting portfolio. Again, that's vo2gogo, the number two, gogo.com slash start. And a big thanks to you guys, our listeners. If you dig this show and you want to see it keep happening, make a one-time, no-strings-attached, tax-deductible contribution via PayPal, Square, or Venmo at our website. Just go to insideacting.net slash contribute. Or, if you'd like, you can sign up as a member for $7 per month or $70 per year and get access to our private member message board, invites to exclusive events, fun freebies, special bonus content, and more. Just visit insideacting.net and click on the membership tab. And that does it for episode 258 of Inside Acting. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, breathe. Breathe.